Hi, I'm David Freudberg, the host of Humankind. I actually grew up in public radio. I've been in the field since I was 16. And from the start, I was taught to offer people content that will inform and enlighten. This podcast is dedicated to spreading ideas that speak to the highest part of our listeners rather than the lowest common denominator. If you like what you hear, we're asking for your help please leave us a kind review on iTunes so others can find us. You can also follow us on Facebook and Twitter. Thanks. Humankind is produced in association with WGBH Boston and supported by the Humankind Program Fund and a grant from the Henry Luce Foundation. It can be uh, very overwhelming for all the staff involved, and that includes the nurses, all those people who are in that room. We see the same thing as other trauma centers in the United States. We see children who've been shot. We see people who've been paralyzed and have lifelong disability. Uh, And in many of the cases that I personally have been involved in, I'm quite certain I could close my mind and still be in the room when we have to tell somebody their son, daughter, wife, brother, child is dead, injured, not going to recover. The health care consequences of our gun violence epidemic and some practical ways to reduce the harm. You're listening to Humankind. I'm David Freudberg. Medical response to a gunshot wound pits the ferocity and precision of advanced ballistic science against the dedication of doctors and nurses. They are armed with the technology and best practices of modern medicine and with their compassion. One system is engineered to maximize the infliction of harm against human beings as rapidly and cheaply and indiscriminately as possible. The other is designed to honor life, to preserve it often at enormous expense, to repair shattered bodies and broken hearts. Where these systems clash most starkly is in the emergency room of an urban hospital like Boston Medical Center. Anybody with a gunshot wound to the head, neck, or chest, or a gunshot wound to the torso, which means from your collarbones to your groin area, or to the uh, upper part of your arm or leg, They have the potential for immediately uh, life-threatening injuries and may require emergency surgery, and minutes can matter. And we've had cases like this quite frequently, and people will survive based upon what happens in the time window. That's James Feldman, an emergency physician at Boston Medical Center and professor of medicine at Boston University. He's treated many patients who show up at the hospital bleeding from a gunshot wound. The ER is typically a beehive of activity. You see the physicians, the nurses around here, on the phone, on the computers, at the bedside, seeing people. Our pharmacist looks like she's doing something, a med check on a uh, medication that's going to be administered, making sure the dose is correct, right patient. People here typically in a lot of pain. Uh, pain is a very prevalent complaint in emergency medicine. I would suspect most of the, many of the people here are pain or have painful conditions. But also we see people with shortness of breath, uh, vomiting, seizures, headache, chest pains, 
injuries, fractures. So, you know, you're seeing the range of, of emergency medicine. And every bay is filled. We have people in our hallways as well. And uh, it's quite busy. When a patient arrives with a gunshot wound, it triggers what the hospital calls a priority one activation. There are three ways that people come to our emergency department. One is by helicopter, the second is by ground ambulance, that's usually Boston EMS or emergency medical services, or finally people come directly from the scene, they maybe drive here, and we've had them pull up into our driveway or crash into our emergency department entrance. With crash into the entrance? Yes come in with people who have been shot. Being shot presents a life-threatening crisis, of course. The medical team is carefully trained to make every second count. In the trauma room, a large digital clock is switched on to time how rapidly the patient is treated. The process begins with notification that a patient is en route. This is the uh, communications section of our emergency department on our B side that has the disaster radio, and also the CMED or Central Medical Emergency Dispatching communications from the pre-hospital providers, either Boston EMS or the other ambulances who transport people here. And uh, so this is, as I said, we'll hear from either the helicopter, Boston MedFlight, or Boston EMS uh, that they're coming in with somebody and that starts the cascade going. One of our residents will answer the call. When it goes off, there's a large, loud beep that will go off. We hear it throughout the department. And there are also other uh, radios so people can hear from other sections, but we'll answer and communicate with the EMTs or paramedics about what's happening and uh, with an attending physician as well. Gun manufacturers now produce over 10 million new guns per year, mostly pistols and rifles. A recent estimate by the Washington Post, based on federal data, puts the total number of firearms in circulation among American civilians at 357 million, a number that exceeds every adult and child in the United States. Dr. Feldman. The national statistics are about 80 people are killed per day in America from gun violence, and uh, another 200 to 300 will be wounded, so roughly uh, 30,000 a year will be killed by gun violence, and another two to 300,000 will be wounded. And so we're, what we see in a trauma center overwhelmingly are going to be people who are uh, injured or uh, occasionally we'll see people who, who have uh, wounds that can't be salvaged. They come into the emergency department. We can't save them. Uh, predominantly are going to be people of color. Overwhelmingly are going to be male. But what we don't see often because it's much more likely to be successful are the people who commit suicide with guns. Someone takes their own life about every 12 minutes in the U.S. And in most cases, suicide is at the point of a gun. The highest rates occur among middle-aged and elderly white people. Someone who is distraught may be tempted by the easy availability and instant lethality of guns. But whether you've shot yourself or someone else has shot you makes little difference when you're wheeled into the emergency room. At Boston Medical Center, a 12-person team swings into action. A top concern is that your airway is unobstructed. The residents who would be responsible, for example, for managing the airway will make sure they check every time they come on on a shift that the equipment is 
is correct. They'll test the balloons for the tubes that we put in the throat, all the medications and so forth. And there are going to be two nurses who will be part of this team, one who's going to be coordinating all of these activities from as soon as we know, making sure the correct activation has gone out. If there are specialty services that need to be notified, uh, blood has to be prepared, Speci specific equipment, for, particularly for gunshot wound, getting chest tubes ready, autotransfusers, blood warmers. Uh, we have our pharmacists preparing for massive transfusion. We get a large volume of blood and blood products because that also has been another advance in trauma care, not just giving blood, but also fresh frozen plasma, other components of the blood to maximize the chance that people will uh, not bleed or become cold from their resuscitation. Often, particularly with penetrating injuries, there's a greater likelihood they may have to have something done, a plastic tube put in their chest. They may have to have uh, large caliber catheters to give large amounts of blood and blood products. And we have the equipment for maintaining the putting on a person on a ventilator, so respiratory therapy is part of that, at least 12-person team, and, uh, and we would be ready to go. So if the beeper goes off and you hear that there's a patient with a gunshot wound with a chest coming out here in two minutes, the response will be the same. What are you looking for when a patient is presented to you with a gunshot wound? Well, obviously the first thing is how stable are they, vital signs, that type thing. Thea James is Associate Chief Medical Officer at Boston Medical Center, and she's also an emergency physician. Then I'm focusing on the patient, focusing on um, what their emotional state might be like. And the first thing I'd like to do, and, and always do actually, is to walk up to the head of the bed and assure them, first of all, tell them that I'm sorry this happened to them. How important is hearing that? Very important, particularly for a um, certain uh, cohort of these patients, a certain, certain, certain number of them, um, those who have um, come from neighborhoods and environments that are challenging to live in. I mean, when you're born and uh, live and work and age in um, neighborhoods that are challenged by not having things they need to thrive, um, where you often feel like your life is not valued, and I know this now from working with them for so long, um, a word, um, an act of compassion is priceless. And so often when a person comes in, obviously people are running around getting things done, um, and they often don't answer any questions that people ask. Sometimes they do, but many times they don't say anything. They just close their eyes. Just, they, they just lie there. And when I say those words to them, I'm so sorry this happened to you. They'll open their eyes, they look at me, and they, and they become inconsolable. They just, 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 start, just start crying. You sort of give them permission to release some of the emotion of this trauma. Exactly. And to help them to understand that I understand this is scary. No matter what the circumstances were, what, no matter what your life is, has been, you're human. And I understand that this is a traumatic event for you. And I want to offer you support and, um, uh, and trust. A lot of times people are really, first of all, disbelieve that it's happened. Dr. James Feldman. They uh, may be quite surprised by the, how much pain and discomfort it causes because when you watch movies or television where it seems like people are shot and they continue to go on for scenes or whatever, uh, so I think there's that misperception about uh, both, first of all, that you actually have been shot. It's a horrific event, 
people are also quite fr frightened about, am I going to survive? And if I am going to survive, what's going to happen? And, and sometimes it's with legitimate issues. People who've been shot and paralyzed, for example, are uh, understand and terrified, will I ever walk again? Uh, and uh, so I, I think that the, and there's a range of experience that people have expressed, and you see it in the trauma room. Some people try to be uh, very macho and, and tough. It doesn't bother me. I'm fine, or I'm leaving, and that also has happened. I know uh, Thea actually has, has managed people who wanted to sign out with serious and life-threatening wounds. Our approach to many things, be the trauma or not, is um, a comprehensive sort of approach. You know, we are trying to make sure that um, we address what caused it, trying to prevent it from happening again and breaking cycles like that. So for victims of violence, for example, uh, patients who come in shattered, stabbed. I'm at if I if if I am working and I'm in the trauma room. I'm doing that piece. The violence intervention advocacy program is there. We have we are connected to the mayor's street worker program. Two of them are based at our hospital. They share office space with our violence team. They are in the waiting room, uh, speaking with the family. Um, and if the person who's injured doesn't get taken to the operating room immediately, they are at the bedside in the emergency department once the patient comes out of the trauma room, making the first uh, contact, talking to the patient about what happened, uh, trying to reassure them, trying to address things like retaliation and that type of thing. And then the other part of, uh, of, of the intervention is we have social workers who uh, are in the trauma room with us, trying to get as much information as possible. Do we know whether they've been typically in risky behavior? Um, sometimes, but you know, we don't ask it. Um, you know, the street workers may have other conversations with them, but it's not a question um, we ask directly. The other thing I, I should say... Is that because you don't want to make the patient any more uncomfortable at that moment? Well, yeah, I mean, because you're, you're with the exception of the street workers, other people are, are violence intervention advocates. It's a pitfall and something we avoid, asking somebody what happened, what they were doing. It really is irrelevant to their medical care and actually could interfere with it if for some reason, and oftentimes there may be an inference because it is a young uh, person of color and they have been shot, uh, that, that they must be doing something illegal or uh, to disregard somebody's comment that they were an innocent bystander or they were at the wrong place at the wrong time. And uh, it, it, it is, uh, I think, fundamentally important for physicians that our focus is on what is wrong, what has to be done to fix it, and to work as a team uh, with all of the expertise we have so that someone has the best chance of both surviving and having the best quality of life when they get through the other door. So that's that's what I would say. I mean, I actually never asked the question, what were you doing, what happened, it's irrelevant to me, uh, and uh, it, it has uh, no role or bearing uh, in terms of the care that we provide. Exploring the public health dimensions of gun violence in America and practical ways to reduce the harm with emergency physicians James Feldman and Thea James. You're listening to Humankind. I'm David Freudberg. For more information on this segment, Epidemic of Gun Violence, and 
to download audio or obtain CD copies, please visit humanmedia.org. The recent debate over gun violence has been punctuated by terrible outbursts of mass shootings. Multiple victims have been slaughtered at schools, at an historic church, at a movie theater, at a center for mentally disabled people, at medical clinics and other venues. Paul Ryan, Speaker of the U.S. House of Representatives. What we have seen in a common theme among many of these mass shootings is a theme of mental illness. And we need to fix our mental illness laws, our policies. They're outdated because we think that's one of the more consistent and common themes, which are people with mental illness are getting guns and, and, and conducting these mass shootings. What could be more frightening than the specter of a lunatic on the loose and armed with a rapid-fire assault weapon of the kind used in many mass shootings? So how much of our gun violence crisis is attributable to people with mental illness? Dr. Feldman. Well, one thing we know is that uh, less than 4% of the uh, cases of gun violence in the country are committed by people with behavioral health diagnoses, and uh, that there have been uh, the few uh, mass shootings where there have been people who have met mental health diagnoses or undiagnosed conditions. But overwhelmingly, if you look at the pyramid of illness and injury, focusing on people with behavioral health is not the answer. That certainly doesn't answer the issue of suicide or adolescents who get a hold of family guns. Uh, it really won't address the issue with interpersonal violence because uh, although some people may have uh, undiagnosed behavioral health conditions or PTSD, they're not psychotic when they're shooting somebody. And I think uh, that it's extrapolating from a small, highly publicized event, for example, like in Tucson or in Aurora, and thinking that focusing on those individuals is going to solve the problem of gun violence. Overwhelming that, that's stigmatizing further people with mental health diagnoses. Um, I, I would also Who say- Who are very unlikely to commit very unlikely gun to commit, violence. To commit gun violence. Uh, if, you, if you look at the total uh, disease burden. I, I would also say on the flip side that absolutely we in emergency medicine strongly support having access to me mental health uh, treatment regardless of, drug of, of gun violence that it's a, uh, a uh, uh, remains a stigmatizing diagnosis, is undertreated, and even with the passage of the mental health parity law still remains a problem in our society. So anybody, I would absolutely agree with this. Uh, I do think that also people have looked at whether uh, gun owners, for example, ha are more likely to be suicidal than the general population. That doesn't seem to be the case. It's depression. So I, I think that uh, the, the simple answer, which also is the political answer, uh, oftentimes people want to respond to those uh, few events of mass shootings where clearly the individual involved uh, appears to have had a, uh, an untreated mental health disorder, whether it's Sandy Hook or... Aurora or uh, any of uh, the number of, but if you look at that overall disease burden, again, look at the numbers, 80 deaths per day, 300 wounded per day, you're looking at a very, very small component of what the real solution has got to be to gun violence. So how do you interpret a case like Sandy Hook, like Aurora, potentially like Charleston, where there appeared to be somebody who was simply crazy? Uh, so I, th I think that uh, many experts in public health would uh, suggest that you need to have a comprehensive and multifaceted approach to any disease. I don't care what it is, and, and 
that uh, so one component of that might be limiting access to uh, assault weapons, for example, or high capacity magazines, or enforcing gun background checks on all people. Although for the case of Sandy Hook is an excellent example, his mother had the guns. There was no background check, as far as I can tell, that would have prevented his access to those weapons. Uh, it, it would be about having secure guns in in people who have them in their homes. It would be having smarter guns so that people who uh, that can be only used by the ones who have it. So there would be, I think that, so you need a comprehensive strategy that responds to the, the problem. Uh, and one one way of looking that, at this would be that uh, when you look at any other disease or condition, let's say with traffic safety or automobiles, there are many components that people accept to try and limit the harm related to that. That includes, for example, you can't drink and drive. You shouldn't be able to operate your gun while you're intoxicated. You, shouldn't, you should have to have some safety. No one goes out and buys an unsafe car to see how much injury they could have for themselves or their family. Dr. James, so we had the Sandy Hook Elementary School case in Newtown, Connecticut in late 2012. What was your personal response when you heard about a murder of a classroom of elementary school children? Well, initially just horror and, and sadness. Um, my initial thought was that whoever uh, committed this horrific act must be unstable in some way. Not exactly sure why, uh, in what way, but unstable in, in, in some way. But definitely uh, horrifying for me and feeling terrible for, for families. Well, I think there's somebody shooting in here at Sandy Hook School. Okay, what makes you think that? Because somebody's got a gun. I saw a glimpse of somebody and they're running down the hallway. Okay. Well, they're still running, they're still shooting. Right. Sandy Hook School, please. The carnage in Newtown claimed the lives of 20 elementary school children aged 6 and 7, plus 6 adults. It sparked a renewed call for restricting access to guns, most vociferously by President Barack Obama, but his plea met with unyielding resistance from Congress and from the lobby of gun manufacturers. Dr. Feldman. When I personally have taken care of children who have been injured or shot, and feel that something should change, that, uh, that, that people should feel the magnitude of the suffering of the families and what that means. And somehow we should get beyond the rhetoric and the politics to think about what can be done reasonably to make it safer. For example, even in Sandy Hook, if the physicians involved, I don't know if, it, I'm not, again, I'm not criticizing or critiquing anybody, but perhaps if we had mandatory screening, if this person ever interfaced with the healthcare system, and we found out if there are guns at home, because that might be an intervention that, including in the emergency department, we could do something to assess, is there a risk at, because people have guns? If they have them, can they make them more secure? Do you have kids who can access them? Do you have somebody at home you might be concerned if they got a gun? Do you have children who are adolescents who might be depressed? And would you consider putting a trigger lock in? If you personally have issues with that you're feeling sad or depressed and you have a gun in the house, not saying take the gun away, that's a constitutional right, but is there something, can you give it to somebody for a time period until you have treatment to feel better? Because once you have somebody who is shot and killed, there is no resuscitation. 
There is, there is no future. And I, and I just felt uh, so overwhelmingly sad that we couldn't in some way get beyond the rhetoric and do something. What are your thoughts on the role of physicians in counseling patients in a primary care environment or otherwise about firearms? I think there's an opportunity for us to counsel people on safe use of firearms. I guess it's depending upon whether or not we are uh, using that opportunity for prevention, um, whether or not we are picking up something in particular in the patient, but I think it's a great opportunity to uh, counsel them about how to safely use firearms to find out where the firearms are in the home um, and to find out how much they, they know about it, uh, about the safety of uh, having firearms in the home, as Dr. Feldman said, um, putting them away safely, locking them up, who has access to them. Also, um, taking the opportunity to discern whether or not the young person or whoever it is in front of you is uh, safe, stable, depressed, not depressed, suffering from some sort of post-traumatic stress disorder, which is something that happens in a, a, a lot of young people who have been injured already. Perhaps in, uh, everyone should be, uh, sh should be counseled around gun safety, particularly parents of young, of, of young people. Is it appropriate for a doctor to recommend that there be no guns in the home? Well, that's a, that's, that, that might be a little tricky because, you know, there are politics and other types of things um, involved. Would it be somehow a violation of professional protocol to do that? I think that the uh, role for the physicians in any setting is, 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 has to be about screening and trying to prevent injury. So uh, people, it's a constitutional right to have guns. I think that only if a physician felt that there was a uh, risk to the person who you're talking to, you said, I'm really feeling depressed, then you might say, if you have a gun, maybe you'd want to uh, do something so it's not in your home, so at least during this period. Do physicians routinely ask if a patient even has a firearm in the home? So uh, I think that it's now recommended by the American Academy of Pediatrics. As you know, in Florida, there are some states that have tried to prohibit or interfere with the doctor-patient relationship, uh, which I think also is something that is unacceptable because in the same way you should be able to screen, do you have medications at home, are they child-proof, do you have children? Uh, before somebody gets poisoned, one should be able to assess the risk to a child in the home. Uh, I think that we also know from the, the literature that this is not often done into something in emergency medicine that we are certainly uh, hoping to explore. It, is, it does have to be balanced by the fact that we have very busy places and an escalating number of mandates to screen people for domestic violence, for uh, uh, substance abuse, for uh, depression, and so forth. So uh, it, I think that it can be done in a targeted way. Gun violence, especially high-profile massacres, are scary events, and gun sales typically spike after these shootings, often spurred by renewed calls for gun restrictions in the wake of horrific slaughters. The question endlessly argued is whether even more guns in circulation would actually make us safer. You might say, I'll be ready for that intruder, I'll be ready for the, uh, I just happened to be walking down the street in Paris, but the reality is that the gun was going to be lying in your cu cupboard under your pillow or something, and the kids are going to come home and after school and say, this looks like fun. Uh, or at some point, you, uh, as an individual, older, you're stressed, you've lost your job, are going to say, this isn't, so I, I, it's an easy way out. So I don't think, I understand the 
uh, normal response to such an event and thinking maybe I could, I could help me protect myself, but I think that's really unlikely. I personally am not going to go out and buy a gun because I think it's going to help me for that occasion when somebody uh, is actively doing this. I think there are better ways uh, through law enforcement and, and other things. That's my own opinion, obviously. Dr. James Feldman, along with Dr. Thea James, emergency physicians at Boston Medical Center. You're listening to Humankind. I'm David Freudberg. Studio recording by Douglas Schubert. Editorial assistance from Ken Rogers, Kathy Graham, Mark Kilstein, and Bond Collard. Webmaster Brian K. Johnson. Special thanks to Tony Buck. Our program is presented by Human Media in association with Connie Goldman Productions. Program development provided by Shart Media. To purchase a CD copy of this program, please call 1-800-5-LISTEN. That's 1-800-5-L-I-S-T-E-N. Or visit our website where you can also obtain an audio download of this and our other programs and can hear selected episodes free. You can access free written materials related to this program as well. Our web address is humanmedia.org. Again, if you'd like to purchase a CD copy of Humankind by phone, please call 1-800-5-LISTEN. And our web address is humanmedia.org. This segment, Epidemic of Gun Violence, is Humankind Program number 237. The executive producer is David Freudberg. This is Humankind. To hear more episodes of Humankind, you can subscribe to our free podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, or your preferred podcast player. A new episode each week. The podcast title is Humankind on Public Radio. And if you enjoy this program, be sure to leave us a kind review at iTunes and Stitcher. If you want to support the program, please visit humanmedia.org. And at the top of the homepage, click on How You Can Help. Again, our web address is humanmedia.org. Thanks.